So the title of the, the sermon this morning is The Life You Save May Be Your Own. Um, when we think about that idea and it contrasts with this idea, apparently, uh, to deny yourself here that Jesus starts talking about in, in uh, verse 35 or verse 34. It brings up a lot of questions. I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of questions about this passage and wrestled with it through my adult life, looking at this and coming to different conclusions about it. And it has, in a sense, haunted me. Um, this passage has done a lot of damage in people's lives. Uh, it has been used to shame and guilt uh, people into all kinds of spiritually manipulative environments. And surely you can read this passage and you can come away with it with that sort of idea there that Jesus is asking you to deny your own feelings, your own desires, your needs, and to just put everybody else before you at all times. That message has been preached many times. It would feel even maybe appropriate in the season of Lent. But that's not my read on it this morning. In fact, I think that's much too small and ordinary of a vision of this text. I, you see, I think, I think that when we read it that way, we're reading it through just a, a normal way that humans respond to relationships that aren't good and that aren't healthy. And so that makes, that makes me curious and has made me curious to wonder, is there something larger here? Is there a greater act of faith? Is there a way to follow Jesus in this path than those ideas of just denial of my basic feelings and my needs and somehow just becoming uh, a 24-7, 360-degree, uh, you know, tract? You know, just telling people Jesus died for your sins, and that's, that's what this is all about. Here's part of the reason that I came to this conclusion, that there's more here, is I've tried this type of denial, and it, and it fit really well with some of the things that I learned in my upbringing and the way that I learned how to cope with the life that I lived, the opportunities and lack of opportunities that I had, and the limits of the relation, relational capacities that I had learned in my family. So here's, here's kind of how it went down. Um, I would read these passages, and I would say, well, I'm just going to serve everybody else. So I'd stuff down my feelings. I'd say, you don't need those things that your, your feelings are telling you you need. You just need to be really spiritual and godly, and that means ignoring that stuff. And then I would work to serve other people really hard uh, in, a, in a variety of ways, in a, in a community that I lived in, uh, in the work that I did, in my friendships, in my relationships. I would try to not ask for things and do things for other people and do that as long as I could without expecting anything in return 
or receiving anything back. Or even if there was a possibility to receive something back, I didn't really know how to at that point or think that was a good thing to do. And so then my soul would eventually become really starving, really famished. And because I didn't know how to get my feelings and needs, which I thought were illegitimate, met in a healthy way, it came to the point where, okay, well, now I have to get them met in an illegitimate way, a way that requires secrecy around maybe food or, or alcohol or, or sex or something like that. And then I would say, oh, man, I'm a sinner. Uh, I, I'm, I keep sinning. God, help me not to be a sinner and do this anymore. And I would feel shame and guilt and then the pattern would eventually start back over. How do I not be a sinner anymore? Well, I start denying myself again, and I serve other people. If I was truly godly, that meant I would cease to need human things. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever done that before in your life? Hey, if you've, uh, if you've been around certain brands of, of evangelicalism in in our country, then you, you surely have been exposed to that on some level. You see, I don't think that's the kind of life Jesus is talking about here. That doesn't sound like anything that I would be afraid to lose. And let me tell you, when I lost that way of living, that was a big burden lifted off of me. And I found myself in a new place. I found myself not a stoic person, not a person afraid to voice my needs and my concerns but a generous person, but a person who could interact in relationships and in the things that I believed about the world in a dynamic way, in a way where I was able to receive and give away. And I'm still learning a lot about that, and I will be my entire life. And any time I think I'm getting you know, really good at that, well, I've got a family, I've got a wife, and I've got three kids, and they let me know when I'm messing up. So what I want to do right here is share with you about some of my journey on walking after Jesus in this passage here and uh, try to describe to you what it might look like to see this differently than this sort of denial of our basic feelings and needs and desires. That's what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning. So in this passage, Jesus is asking us to do something incredible and incredibly difficult. It's no wonder it's so difficult for us to live with this in a truly godly and spiritual way. In verse 34, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple. And before he says that, you can see here that the narrator, John Mark, lets us know that he called the crowd and his disciples so he's bringing everybody around in on this. This is not just a, a secret word for uh, his, his 12. He's saying, I'm about to give you this challenge, and I want everybody to hear what it means. Jesus is walking around. He's got his disciples with him. More and more people are following him, and he gives this charge. So this charge is for us. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He says, get an instrument of death 
the cross. And not just any instrument. We wouldn't liken it to a gun or something like that, something that, that was meant to just kill someone as quickly as possible, but the most shameful instrument of death that existed at the time, a cross. This was a tool that the Roman authorities would use to make examples out of people, people who bucked the system, people who did not acknowledge the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. This was a way to make, uh, make everybody else look at this person and say, whatever you do, don't do what they did because you'll end up like this, disgraced and ashamed in your death. And this is the thing. It's not a pretty gold cross around our neck that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about an incredibly shameful instrument of death. And he's saying, in order for you to be my disciple, to learn, to go after me, to follow in my footsteps, you need this on your back. Whew. That doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like a seeker-friendly message right there. That sounds really, really hardcore. That doesn't sound like something you might hear preached in a 4,000-person megachurch or something like that. Hey, God loves you. Carry this instrument of death that's the single greatest source of shame in the ancient world, right? And so the temptation, of course, is then to say, uh, well, Jesus doesn't really mean this, and uh, this is extremely uh, metaphorical or something like that. And in some ways, it is metaphorical. But I want you to understand the weight that this would have held to these original hearers of it. It's almost like, hey, gather up a, a piece of a, a you know, a, a electric chair, like, you know, get the helmet on and strap the, the chair onto your back and walk around with that. You know, that'd be like maybe a little bit kind of close. So what is he doing here? He's doing Lent. This is Lent right? He's reminding us of our own mortality, that it's, that it's right behind us at all times. The understanding that each of us will die. And that's been on our minds probably a little bit more. We probably have known people, or at least known people who know people who have died. We're up to half a million deaths just from the coronavirus, just from COVID-19. And so it's not like we need a lot of extra help right now thinking about our own mortality. But we do forget very often and very frequently. But here's what I want to make plain about this that I think is so important about what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, you will die. At least this is what I think he's saying. You will die. This is, this is what will happen. And so what way will you be an active participant in how your life moves to its inevitable conclusion? In what ways? What type of life will you choose to live? Obviously, he's not advocating a life focused on self-preservation here. In verse 35, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. This is an incredible statement here that he is beginning to work on and talk about here. And he says, uh, and, and I want to say what I don't think he's saying. Should I not wear my seatbelt? Right? I don't think he's saying I shouldn't wear my seatbelt or not exercise and take care of myself 
or make wise choices in, with, my, with my money and things like that. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think to help us get a better grasp of the message here, we should take a look at this word that's translated in two different ways in this passage. It's translated as life here in verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And it's also translated as soul later on in the passage. This is, comes from uh, a Greek word that's translated both life and soul. And the rough pronunciation is suka in Greek, which we get our word psyche from. And so this idea of, of psyche at that time in the ancient world would have basically been the seat of kind of our, our mind, our will, our emotions, or for short, you could just say heart. And so a different way to say it, whoever wants to save their psyche, their ego is a good translation in modern English, will lose it. To give this up uh, is what Jesus is going towards, but right now he's saying, if you want to save this, you will lose it. So, what, what does that mean? How, what are we supposed to do with that? If it's not to just deny your feelings and your needs and your desires, then what is it? What is it that Jesus is calling us to? I want to bring up something here, uh, something that has, has impacted how I sort of think through these things on a pastoral level. I've talked about it maybe once or twice before, but it's, um, it's a, a, a psychologist named Eric Erickson's uh, Eight Stages of Human Development. And the seventh out of the eighth stage is this play between two terms, generativity versus stagnation. Generativity versus stagnation. And what Erickson says about this stage is that unlike a lot of the other stages, it's not necessarily just brought on by an age range that you're in, but more about different life circumstances. It might be brought about uh, getting into this gener generativity stage as opposed to stagnation. It might be brought about by a certain type of career. It might be brought about by uh, a marriage or having children. These are some of the, the events in life that can bring someone into a healthy place of generativity. And I know, I know it's going to take a second, but hang with me. This is going to come right to your front door in just a moment here. So some of the markers of generativity, according to Erickson, are these things. Having a pride in work and family. Feeling included. So, and all these go back to the previous stages of, of human development taking responsibility for your life, feeling productive in your life, making contributions to society, these things. And so um, when, I, when I looked at this list and I thought about this idea of giving up your life or, or trying to hold on to your life, your psyche, to lose it, and, and then losing it, I mean, the idea that you would try to hold on to certain things and it would cause you to actually lose, to miss out on life. It reminded me of this stage in human development. Because the opposite of 
this stage of generativity is a life marked by selfishness of, of thinking about what is everybody else constantly trying to do for me or how is everybody else a, a negative force against me getting the things that I want and need. And when I look at this passage, I think, okay, so Jesus is asking us to give something up. And he's calling it life, psyche. So what is that? That if I don't give up, I lose it. It brings me here. It brings me to this idea that there are points in our lives, and the gospel rushes us into this, especially as adults, where we are faced with this kind of decision, where we are going to shrink back and continue to do something continue to live in a sort of way that fit for a time being. It fit when we were a child. It fit when my seven-year-old is constantly wanting to be first, is constantly wanting uh, to be the strongest, to be the most right about something, to be these types of things. And in childhood, we need that. We need to build this sort of life. We need to get these certain types of affirmation. We need to develop these certain kinds of trusts. But none of us makes it into adulthood with all of those things in place. And so we come to points in our life, and Jesus is is making this point apparent. He's creating a sort of fork in the road for us to look at here, where you can continue to live like a child. You can continue to make the world all about you. Or you can begin to say, there are some things in my psyche, in my development, it is time to die to and to begin to trust, even though when a chi- as a child, I couldn't fully trust. Or that when I was a teenager, I never really fully could wrap myself around this identity of feeling included. Or, or now that I'm an adult, I am going to, even though I was done wrong, I'm going to take responsibility for the life that I have, not the life that I think I should have had. Am I able to give this up? Am I able to embrace this world of generativity that is exemplified in the death of this old self? this picking up of the cross. Are you responsible for your life? The only way that you could possibly accept this call from Jesus is you can take responsibility for your life. The word psyche uh, and the Greek word that originates from it actually is the 23rd, the root of it is the 23rd letter in the Greek alphabet. Some of you might recognize it from uh, fraternities, sororities, stuff like that. And it looks uh, kind of like a, a trident uh, or, or a fork. Um, if we had all our, our stuff up and running, I'd show you a picture of it. But it also looks like a butterfly. And actually, in ancient Greece, those words, the word psi, the picture of it, became connected with a butterfly so much so that the Greeks, but not just the Greeks, this happens in cultures all over the world, uh, the soul, the metaphor for a soul became a butterfly. And there's a lot of transformation in a butterfly. There's a lot of, of, of death to an old way of living 
in order to live in a new way of life. And I wondered what happens to a caterpillar if it never cocoons up before it becomes a butterfly. And so I looked it up. And some scientists at Baylor University had, had something to say about it, said that the, if the conditions aren't right and the caterpillar stays a caterpillar, it will continue to eat, uh, and uh, eventually it'll just stop eating, it'll be really fat, and it will die of, uh, of not having enough water. Uh, it'll, it'll just dry out. And that made me think of what Jesus is talking about here when he says, forever wants to save their life will lose it. That there are things about this way of operating. For me, the story that I shared with you of trying to serve other people in this, in this way, it connected to this whole way of living and thinking that had served me. It helped me survive up until this certain point in my life but it wasn't going to help me any longer. And it took being able to reimagine what it meant to give it up to get something new. In verse 36, Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is, such a, this is such a hard message for me because I'm kind of like this revolutionary type of thinker at heart. And like I, I, I think that way and I know that's not the way um, everybody thinks about uh, their life. And so when I bring those types of sensibilities to this passage, I know that it makes me bias in a certain type of way as I look at these scriptures. But I can't get away from this message here. That Jesus says here in verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And is there anything you can give in exchange for that? When you, when you become stagnant and, and you're unable to move past this stage, I think you do give up something likened to your soul. You give up this sort of dignity of what, it, what does it mean for a human being to live and to stretch beyond caring just for themselves. It doesn't mean denying your feelings and your needs. It means embracing those things and trusting God and your, and your people, your church, to help meet you in those things so that you can move beyond those things. You can stay. You can stay building your little kingdom. And you can die with a lot of regrets. Because we will die. All of us. I looked up main regrets of people on their deathbeds. I looked up several. There were a lot of different lists by hospice folks and stuff like that. Most of the lists had this at the very top of the list. I wish I'd had the courage to live a true life. A life being true to myself, not the life that others expected of me. I think this is part of what is happening here 
in this text. We can look at the world, we can wrap ourselves in cynicism and say, you know what, if I try to actually do this thing, if I actually try to follow Jesus, if I actually try to believe in the kingdom of heaven, I'm not going to get anything for that. Like Jesus himself killed on the cross. Like I'm going to sprinkle a little bit in some motivational thoughts, some meditations, but this is just crazy right here. And we end up like a caterpillar that was always meant to be a butterfly, and we die of dehydration. We, drop, we die of water to our spirit because we will die. Um, it's the last, is it, is it, it's the 28th, right? Yeah, it's the 28th, the last day of, of uh, Black History Month. And um, I was joking with the staff because, uh, you know, there's, there's a th- kind of a thing right now where, you know, if you're, you're a pastor, you should be quoting black, black uh, folks during Black History Month. And I'm like, well, I'll just quote myself. I'm just talking, just doing that. So I don't feel any pressure to do that. Um, but, but when I was thinking and dwelling on this passage, I've been thinking about this connection between uh, a man named Dr. Huey P. Newton. And you might not recognize his name with, the, with doctor in the front of it, but he was one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party, founded in Sacramento, California. And he wrote an autobiography that was called Revolutionary Suicide. And in it, he talks about two ways of responding to a world that's unfair, that's unjust, a world that would crucify somebody the world that we live in today. He, he talks about this idea of reactionary suicide. And, and it might sound, I don't know if it does or not, it might sound kind of funny to be talking about bringing up the word suicide right now or strange, but isn't that kind of what Jesus is talking about in, this, in some way in this path? Isn't it sort of suicide to follow Jesus in this way? Isn't that why he's saying, take up the cross and follow me? And he talks about, Huey P. Newton talks about reactionary suicide versus revolutionary suicide. And I want to read to you a little bit about how he defines these things. Because I think it can bring some clarity to this passage here in Matt and Mark. Of reactionary suicide, he says, This is the reaction of a man who takes his own life in response to social conditions that overwhelm him and condemn him to helplessness. So it's a reaction. It's a, I can't take this anymore. And many people get to that point, and it's, and it's sad. And um, I'm not uh, belittling that right now. Uh, I'm just sort of defining these terms here. He talks about revolutionary suicide in this way. He says, I do not think that life will change for the better without an assault on the establishment. Who was it that Jesus said was going to kill him in this passage? Do you remember who it was? It was the establishment. It was the chief priests. It was the teachers. It was the people of influence who held the establishment in place. So it says, I do not think life will change for the better without an assault on the establishment, which goes on exploiting the wretched of the earth. This belief lies at the heart of the concept of revolutionary suicide. 
Thus, it is better to oppose the forces that would drive me to self-murder than to endure them. Although I risk the likelihood of death, there is at least the possibility, if not the probability, of changing intolerable conditions. Of changing intolerable conditions. This possibility is important because much in human existence is based upon hope without any real understanding of the odds. Indeed, we are all, black and white alike, ill in the same way, mortally ill. But before we die, how shall we live? I say with hope and dignity. And if premature death is the result, then death has a meaning reactionary suicide never can have. It is the price of self-respect. This strong desire to live with hope and dignity. Jesus calls us to do this. He calls us to say, the circumstances around you, be damned. This is the life we are called to live. Whether it makes our lives physically shorter, whether it's dying to outdated ways of coping with the world, this is the hard task of the faith and courage Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Another insect that I was thinking about in, in comparison to this was a hermit crab. You know, sometimes hermit crabs, if the conditions aren't right, uh, they, they'll stick with the same shell even though they grow their crustaceans, they have an exoskeleton, and so they get, they get bigger over time and they need to find a bigger shell to fit. But sometimes they'll stick with their own shell if they don't have the shells around. If like they're in a tank, you know, anybody have a hermit crab as a kid? I didn't. I'm glad I didn't. It always grossed me out when my friends did. But, uh, you know, that's, that's me. But the thing about a hermit crab is if the hermit crab looks around and can't find any, any suitable shells, then it just stays where it is, and it will hamper the crab's growth in life. And I think that was happening to me earlier uh, in my life where because of my perception of the world, I would look out, I would look out, and I, I fully believe the gospel, but when I looked out and I looked at the possibilities of how I could live, I looked at new psychological, spiritual homes for me, I would see shells, and they didn't look like they fit right. So I kept sticking with the one that I had. And eventually, I would start to lose some hope, and maybe some dignity as well. And so I think this is part of what's happening here, is Jesus is calling us to give up something that could never save us, even though it really helped us for a time. There are ways you're coping with your life that helped you when you were a child, helped you survive things. But Jesus is calling us to do more than react to life. Jesus is calling us to be revolutionaries in this life. It's the same hope that Huey P. Newton was talking about, the hope for the dignity of all human beings. And so as we start to 
close this time down and move towards communion, what does that mean? What does that mean for you in your life? What is it that you need to die to your old way of thinking in? Things that will be real risks to you, or at least some of them will feel like real risks. And right now, we're in a pandemic, and I get that. And some of us are sitting here thinking, I'm just trying to survive, Jamie. And I know, I'm preaching what the lectionary gave me this morning. But at the same time, our lives haven't stopped. There are things that we can pursue, things that we can see, things that we can begin to ask God to change our perceptions around, to ask for help. What does it mean for me to die to these old ways of thinking, to realize my time is limited? We don't get to choose when we die, but we can choose how we head towards that inevitable conclusion of our life. Will we do it with the cross on our shoulders, or will we do it grabbing and grasping at the same things that never could satisfy us to begin with.